Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books and Psychoanalysis, uh, a podcast channel of the New Books Network. My name is Philip Lance, and I'm the host of the channel, the Psychoanalysis Channel. Today, I'm interviewing Helen Morgan about her book, The Work of Whiteness, a Psychoanalytic Perspective, published by Rutledge in 2021. One of the things that I appreciate about being a psychoanalytic psychotherapist is that psychoanalysis helps us to see things sometimes things that make all the difference, where nothing appears at all. Whiteness can appear to be nothing at all, which is why we needed this book from Helen Morgan. Helen is a Jungian training analyst and supervisor and fellow of the British Psychotherapy Foundation. Her background is in therapeutic communities with adolescents and in adult mental health. She has served as the chair of the British Association of Psychotherapists and chair of the British Psychoanalytic Council. She has published many papers, including several on racism. Um, Welcome to the program, Helen. Thank you very much, Philip. It's uh, good to be here. So I always start off with a really simple question, which is why why did you write this book? Uh, Well, it's it's more the history of how it came to be written, really, that... um, Back in the nineties, nineteen nineties, I was working with a um, a black patient who I called D in the book, um, and I got very intrigued by the uh, relationship between us, and particularly some incidents that happened uh, that, around race. And I, I I was very puzzled. I was very aware I'd done so little work for myself around race. Um, and couldn't find an awful lot in the literature. Um, So I did what I could and wrote a paper about her and the work with her and then then got interested in thinking about race in other areas such as supervision, uh, in our institutions, in our theory, how, why wasn't it getting talked about more? And then I was asked... uh, (coughs) Few year, a couple of years ago, if I put the papers together into a book, and I thought, oh, that'll be easy. Um, 
But as I started working on the book and, and researching more, I realized I was much less interested. My focus shifted from race and racism to whiteness. And I began to realize there was a whole area of myself that was unexamined. Um, I just hadn't explored, thought about, um, read much about. It didn't, hadn't come up in my analysis. Um, so I became, and I also sort of realized I had no authority to speak up for the for people who are of color. But what I could do is try and explore more whiteness and what it meant from a particularly from a psychoanalytic perspective. So I ended up going down a whole different trail, um, using some of the material from papers I've written, but but much more focused on whiteness. And I imagine a lot of people would think, um, oh, this is a recent wave of books following um, George Floyd's murder in the summer of 2020 here in the United States and the Black Lives Movement. But um, when did you when did you begin working on this book? in terms of actually writing the book? Uh, I, I, I started it probably about um, 2018, 19. And in fact, I, it, I sent it off to Routledge. I finished it the summer after George Floyd's death. So it was only the last few months um, of Black Lives Matter. The coincidence of um, Black Lives Matter and indeed... Um, COVID and, and the, the use of Zoom is that what I thought was going to be a book read by two and a half people um, uh, has turned out to be um, suddenly something of, of significance because it's something that because of Black Lives Matter people are talking about. But in fact, it was practically finished um, at the time of George Floyd's death. Um, I mentioned him in the book um, because I still I still hadn't finished, but it was the bulk of it had been written before then. Uh huh. Well, and then since you mentioned that this um, the kind of timeliness, I'll jump to sort of what has been the reception. Um, sounds like you're you're pleased that more people are paying attention to it than you expected. Uh, can you say any more about um, the impact or the results it's had upon on? And your work in life? Well, I have been asked to do a lot of teaching, um, talking at conferences, and because of, as I say, the use of Zoom, like here now, uh, around the world. Um, so it's sort of, you know, Friday afternoon in Seattle or something. So it's been, that's been fascinating, very interesting. Um, and then doing also some consultancy work in this country with with black colleagues um, around organisations. Um, I've had uh, everything from um, death threats um, through to, as called a white traitor, um, through to uh, a sort of... Uh, people really struggling with it, people working hard with thinking about their own whiteness and what it means to them. But I think one of the things I've, I'm wanting to write a bit more about is um, the, our profession and a certain um, well, I, I use the term um, that Charles Mills, the philosopher, uses, which is white ignorance. There's something quite at, which it, where he takes the, the, the word ignore as an active 
verb in the middle of ignorance. And I think along with some people in the profession who are really working and wanting to work at this and to try and address it, there's a sort of um, ignoring of the subject uh, so that I'm often asked to go and talk to trainees uh, or I'm asked to talk at places where the more junior members, the younger members turn up but not the elders. It's as if we haven't got a problem to think about, We're, we're sorted. And it worries me. Yeah, I was, um, I shouldn't have been, but I was shocked and really so sad here that you've got de- death threats from writing this, such a beautiful book. Um, you know, you don't talk about critical race theory in this book. I don't think so. I don't remember explicitly. Um, but that's a topic that's very controversial in the United States. and. I guess because a lot of people, um, one of the criticisms of, of, of it is that people say, well, it, it shouldn't be taught in schools. Not that it really is very much, but uh, because it makes children feel bad about, um, about being white or, or critical race theory is um, anti-white. It's, another, it's, a, it's a kind of another racism. Uh, so I just wanted to get your thoughts about critical race theory and this, this book. Um, I, yeah, I mean, I wasn't terribly aware, aware of the term. You know, I wasn't particularly aware of the term. Uh, I think it's probably more, more, it's here, hit more here now, but um, it's more of an American, or originated in America as an idea. I, I, I think that's to totally under, misunderstand the concept. Because um, I, where I do think, looking at, what I, what I can about the people who write critical race theory is, I'm, I'm saying something similar, I suppose, which is to try and see this idea of race as a social construct, uh, which catches us all, black and white. Um, one of my premises of my book is to say that this is a historic, political, social, crude, crass, stupid division that 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 comes it looks like from the 17th century but is is powerful today and of course black people suffer terribly from from it but but so do white people it 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 we have been racialized too um and of course it's complicated because we also have white privilege but it it it, it seems to me that for me personally when i started thinking less of am i or am i not a racist and much more as uh, as i i live in a society that is racist and is is constructed in this way and of course it impacts on me in fact it felt felt to me quite a relief it felt like i'm it wasn't saying to white children you're bad um it's saying Look, you're caught in something too. Can it be understood and thought about? Um, so I think it's to misunderstand what I understand critical race theory is saying, and certainly what I'm saying, to see it as uh, as any way an attack on white people. Um, uh, yes, we people have got white people have got work to do. Um, we've got a lot of work to do, I think, which we're only just beginning. But it's 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 not. It's certainly not just say it's not anti-white or attacking whiteness. It's 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 or white children or it's trying to understand it. Yeah, and so you, I think you mentioned white ignorance. I also came across the phrase in your book, white 
solipsism. And I really, I'd never heard that before. And I was curious, is that, did you come up with that phrase? But I think it's so um, relevant to psychoanalysis because I guess I, I, when I think of solipsism, it's like living in a, in kind of a, a, a Gnostic bubble, a bubble of where you don't know anything other than what you know, um, and you can't get outside of it. And so it limits you, it blinds you. Um, and so much of, I think, the work we're doing with our patients is trying to bring them out of some kind of a solipsistic state. Um, but in this case, yeah, white, white solipsism, I found that very useful. And is that your idea? Is that your, is that your idea of white solipsism? Um, uh, well, yeah, since you asked the question, I thought, oh dear, is it my idea? I, I, <laughs> I think so. I, I can't, it just seemed to me... Um, there's something about the part of the privilege of whiteness is that solipsism, it seems to me. It's the sort of um, fish in fish trying to describe water, isn't it? It's uh, it's it's uh, just as you've been saying it. And um, so it just seemed to me they went together. And how do you think about something that is taken for granted as the norm, the the just the way things are um how do you step outside it how do you think about it uh black people will be very aware of of whiteness and yet this 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 idea of whiteness is 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 in a way quite new um we used to talk about what blackness but we're not we're not very used to talk about whiteness and since you're we don't often have Jungian um, people on our program here, um, and you have a good background in that. So I wanted to read a quote by James Hillman um, and just get your reaction to it. But this is from your book where James Hillman, who for people who don't know, was a very preeminent sort of Jungian scholar, theor- theor- theoretician. He said, quote, our culture is white supremacist inescapably white supremacist in that the superiority of whiteness is affirmed by our major texts and is fundamental to our linguistic roots and thus our perceptual structures. Um, So I think this is the kind of statement that makes sort of right-wingers in our country really infuriated. And so I wanted to ask you, when do you think he's overstating the case or when he says, our culture is white supremacist. What's your reaction to that? I don't think he's overstating it. No, I think it is. I think it's um, uh, it, it's just it's just embedded in everything. It's it's in our texts. It's in our it's in our psychoanalytic texts too. I think um, it, it's it, there's something around this um, assumption of white superiority that is that that is just there in 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 the air we breathe, the water we drink, um, and I, that which makes it ter- terribly difficult to challenge and work with. But I think it's there. I don't. I don't think it's an overstatement. No. But I don't think, therefore, therefore, white people are bad. I'm not. That's not the. That's the equation. That um, you know. That's the su- white supremacy. Is it? Is what I live in as well. Um, and it, it, it corrupts me. Yeah, okay. And so um, there's a line from your book. I guess you said this. I have it in quotation marks. 
uh, we were archetypally prepared for white supremacy. Or maybe that's that's Hillman. But um, so let's talk a little bit about archetypes. Um, and maybe I have an example. Just uh, two days ago, I, I have a black client who, as he was talking, he, he kind of said in passing, well, he said, for want of a better word, let's say, let's, t- let's say that's my dark side. Um, and then he went on and then I realized, oh, he's, he's recognizing that when he uses the word dark, that it, it's in a context of an understanding of, in a, of a racist history in our world. Um, whereas I don't know how many times in the past I've mentioned to clients, maybe I've said something about your dark side and I never thought about it, um, in the context of race, but, um, but so he said, you know, for want of a better word, even he was kind of stuck, um, with having to use this, um, comparative sort of adjective, um, is that, I don't know if that has to do with archetypes, but maybe you could talk a little bit about. Well, that. as you, as you point out, I think to point out before about the, I, I'm, I'm, I'm ambivalent about archetypal structures anyway it's a it's a part of the Jungian theory which is being very questioned at the moment but and it, it would be taken and, um certainly back I'd use it as um archetypally rather than archetypes but but because it's a reality that are you know as I point out in the book um mother's milk is white um father's sperm is white uh, you know the angels are white. The light, you know, the day is white. The night, night is dark. But you know that 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 we do have these contrasts in our because of our diurnal um, world and our our physical bodies. So dark, lack of light. That they're, they're they're there. They're real. That's that thing. What what has happened is that people with a darker skin, a darker hue of skin, have got have have been. Um, linked to the devil, the shit, the, the, the bad, and whiteness with goodness and angels and light and bright. Um, whereas actually we're just, no one is white, <laughs> just as no one is black. We're just shades. Some of us have got a lighter hue skin and some of us have got a darker hue skin. But how by, by, by linking the lighter hued skin people to goodness and lightness and daytime and, and angels and heaven and the darker hued skin to um, hell and devils and shit and, and all that side, you, you've, you've done a lot of the work already psychologically to bring in our fears and our projections and our splittings. Where the light dividing line is changes over history and geography. Sometimes, sometimes, for example, Jews have been considered uh, black. Um, sometimes not. Um, Southern Southern Europeans, Irish, etc. They move around because it's such a nonsense division. But we are then left with a legacy. So when you talk about the darker side. <clears throat> We, we also have to live with and work with the link that's been made between people with a browner skin to the, to the bad and the, the, the hell and the evil, um, which, is a, which is a construction. Does that make sense? Yeah, and I like, there was, um, it took me a long time to get my head around the fact that race 
is not an essential, you know, it's really hard for people, and as it was for me to understand that for the longest time. Um, of course, it's an essential thing. You know? uh, it's biologically just there. Um, but you you have a good part in your book where you you kind of help educate us about how it is a social social construction. Um, and uh, let's see. Well, let's move on to Beyond a little bit because, um, and I'm I'm not sure I have a question here, but I just uh, I like how you used um, sort of some some Beyondian concepts in your work. And I have a let's see, I think this is a quote: um, "To fail to acknowledge difference, to assume color blindness, leads us more into the realm of minus K, um, whereas K symbolizes knowledge." Minus K represents not only ignorance, but active avoidance of awareness, where the truth would disadvantage the individual or the group were they to allow themselves to know. So that's a lot there. But so for people who may not be familiar, I guess we could think of K as knowledge. So minus K is a lack of knowledge, but that kind of charades or masquerades as knowing, but it isn't really. It's missing something. Um, and uh, so I guess what could we say your book is is an effort to help us come to true knowledge about whiteness and not not a minus K about whiteness. Does that sound right? I suppose so. It sounds a bit um, <laughs> uh, grandiose, I suppose, but I... Um, uh, I, I got very interested, and I want to write some more about it, actually, because I, I don't spend a lot of time on, on Beyond. But I did link it to this idea of white ignorance and Charles Mills' concept and the epistemology of in ignorance, which he writes about. Um, and and it, it struck me that I've always been quite been interested in the idea of it, because, of course, it's not just knowledge of, like, physics or something like that. It's knowledge as in relationship. Is what he's interested in because he links his other links are love and hate, and there's something about the active, um, the active nature of minus K, which is what I think I'm meeting quite a lot in the profession. Actually, um, is 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 a sort of um, wish not to know, or not, not to not to, not to think about it, not to. Um, and, and of course, it, you see, it, white privilege is maintained by white ignorance. You know, if we if we are to face what what has happened and what does happen, what what our whiteness means, and what we would have to give up, mm-hmm. um, then then it, <laughs> well, there's there's a lot to give up. Um, so, in fact, it, the investment in in minus K, I think, is is very strong for white white people. It's it it's always dragging us back. I think to a a place of not knowing. Yeah, and so what what we might have to give up. Um, that kind of brings me to to the the Kleinian piece um, around reparations. Um, uh, for some people in our society, may, may when we're talking about race issues and reparations, immediately they assume we're talking about um, uh, making some kind of um, financial compensation to people who have been hurt and damaged. Um, 
but within the Kleinian psychoanalytic world, reparations means something very interestingly similar and different, but it's about um, recognizing the intrapsychic damage we do um, when we're in extreme states of emotional states, as we often are as infants, and, um, and beginning to repair that internally. But, so at our institute in Los Angeles, we recently had a, a seminar where we had two black psychologists who read papers on reparations. Um, and they, they didn't explicitly link it to Kleinian reparation, but they were speaking to an institute of people who are immersed in Kleinian psychoanalysis. And it was really interesting um, to see how Kleinian psychoanalysis can help us as a country begin thinking about um, we're never going to be in a good place as a society or healthy as a society or as individuals until we can acknowledge guilt, um, hurt, damage that has happened that we've done to others, and um, to enter into this reparative uh, state of mind. Um, and anyway, there are some really good sections in your book along those lines. Uh, again, I guess I don't have a question here, but anything more you'd like to say about that? Well, I, I, you, yeah, I, I suppose because <laughs> the capacity to, for guilt is a, is it such an important capacity in the developmental stages and and the, certainly in the depressive position, and uh, and the and the opportunity or the, the capacity to make reparation for the harm you've done. Um, uh, you see, one of the other th- things that's really interested me throughout all writing all this is is how difficult white people find it to talk about race. Um, it's sort of like you raise a subject and everyone freezes. It gets quite visceral. There can be, you know, people feeling sick, or there, there's um, and there's a defensiveness about. There's a and what people often say is, "I'm terrified. I'll say the wrong thing, and I'll I'll be I'll be racist." And what, if you're investigating that, mostly what I found, and certainly in myself, I'm, I'm not separating myself from this, I know it, I know that frozen state, that fear of, of getting it wrong. But what I realised is, is that mostly what we're scared of is being seen as racist. We're not actually concerned about have we actually done any harm to anyone else. So we watch our language, make sure we're saying the right accepted words etc try not to trigger anything etc but is our primary motive um, the concern for the other or is it what Stephen Mitchell calls guiltiness which is much more about oh god I'm going to be I'm going to be labeled a racist and I think that's they're very different things um, d- d- does that does that make sense? Uh, well, say a little bit more about okay, so the white guiltiness. That's and because now we're in the relational world, I guess, of Stephen Mitchell. But because um, I'm not sure when I read it in your book, I I got it. Um, so, so tell me again, white. What is white guiltiness as opposed to guilt? I guess. Well, I think it's um, uh, it's it's the sense of. It's actually much more about self-protection. If you think of the child who is, there's a distinction between the child who has not recognizes she's hurt the other mother or father, and is um, 
has attacked the bad or bad breast, if you like, and, and has hurt the good breast, to be very crude about it, um, and then wants to make reparation, feels guilt, feels I've done damage to another and I want to make reparation, as opposed to the child who is... Um, grows up in a, in a world where she's constantly being told she's bad and must apologise um, for, for doing bad things. That's not, that's not guilt. That's, a, that's an assumed guiltiness to try and su- survive in that setting. And I think white guiltiness, as I understand it, is, is much more, um, Adrian Harris calls it, comes from the, the paranoid schizoid position more which is to, to fend off the anxiety that comes with the depressive position and the, 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 the fact. So I must be very careful not to, to, to maintain a good sense of myself, myself as a good person, by not saying anything or appearing to say anything that is, could be labelled racist, rather than I don't... I want to work from a position that I don't want to hurt people. And if I do hurt people by saying something that, that is race, race, racist, then I want to know, I want to engage in that and find out about what has happened to the other person and what harm has been done and what reparation I can make. But what I often see both in myself and in other people is a much more of a self-protective defensive system a fear of being appearing bad. Yeah, that was very clear and also very moving when you when you think about if if our culture could move from a state of guiltiness around these issues to to a place of real true guilt. Yeah. Well, how healing that would be for everybody. Um, but we have a long way to go to get there. Um, another kind of concept you talked about was was um, horizontal versus vertical splits, um, I guess, in the psyche. What was your, can you tell us about your point there? Oh. <laughs> um, well, I'm talking about disavowal. I mean, it's a contrivance, really, isn't it? Once you start trying to map out the psyche, it's, it's, it's a nonsense, really. But so bearing that in mind. But what I'm trying to distinguish is between um, the the... If we think about, if you like, consciousness and unconsciousness very crudely, because I'm not interested in going into this for much, we're talking really about a horizontal split in the psyche. That's how you could imagine it. Like above the, the, the line, if you like, we are con- there is consciousness and below it there is unconscious. Very crude. I'm, I apologize for that. That's a sort of, that's a way of viewing the psyche perhaps in a, with, a, with a horizontal line in it. With disavowal, I think it's, which we don't, it's there in the literature, but it's not talked about a lot. It's because it's, um, you're conscious of both sides. It's more like a vertical split that develops. Um, The most obvious uh, example of it is an addiction. So if I, if I'm, um, if I smoke or take drugs or, drink too much or something i know i know the consequences i don't it's not i'm not unconscious of the consequences of my behavior um you don't have to tell me what smoking cigarettes does to me um i know it but when i want my drug of choice i disavow what i am conscious of 
So you you hold two conscious positions. The other example, both collectively and individually, would be the climate emergency. So we both know what that that we perhaps shouldn't be eating meat or flying or you know <laughs> driving our cars so much, but we go on doing it because we disavow. So we maintain two images of ourselves, um, two two realities. And uh, in the in race, because of the color blind, it's a much longer piece in the book about how this might develop in children. Because I'm talking about the white liberal family or white progressive family, where the child, all the research is, is that children know as early as three or four about race and racism. They know the world isn't unjust in that sense. And yet what they mostly receive is um, colorblindness, you know, brushing it off from the adults. Oh, oh, we all love each other. Everyone's the same. You know, it's, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a lie basically, is what they receive. So they have to manage two positions, um, both what they know and what is allowed to be talked about in, uh, in, with adults. And I also suggest that there's a, in racism, there's something, a, a gap develops between those two division in the division. And that's where I go to Andre Green and the dead mother and what um, Adrian Harris calls the psychose blanche. And I think that's what we fall into when we often when we as white people try and talk about race. Yeah, fascinating. I'm thinking of another example. In my work with, with gay clients, often in the earlier part of their, their lives, when they were still, quote, in the closet, even in the closet to themselves, meaning there was some awareness of their, of what would become a gay identity but also a complete disavowal of it. And so they live in two worlds and often in kind of a, we could say a dissociated state. Maybe that's the the, the blank. What's the Andre Green term? Psychos blanche. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Any case. Yeah. Disavowal as opposed to that's the vertical. Yeah. Uh, Let's see. So why are psychoanalytic institutes and for our listeners who may not be involved in one of those, these in, these are the institutes that train psychoanalysts. Why are they so so white, or or are they? Is that my impression, or is that accurate? No, they're they're, they're very white. They're white, you know. From what I gather, they're certainly very white over here. And I, from what I gather from colleagues in in America, they're very white in, in America too. Um, I well, I think I think we we ought to, to be. And I naively thought when I first started getting interested in this that this is a profession that would be streets ahead in, in trying to think about this. This is what we, this is our bread and butter, isn't it? Trying to un- examine the unexamined. And But I think there are certain factors. Um, and I, I mean, I, this is certainly only in the British context, but I have been at this from, a, from the angry trainee back in the day through to the chair of our, our Oh, it's like you know our over overarching psychoanalytic council. So I've tried it at every every stage, if you like, every place in the in the hierarchy. And I I am just so struck by the resistance there is to. I've never met anything racist. I've never heard anyone say anything blatantly racist or blatantly rejecting. 
but I think the there is a real problem of this white ignorance in our profession. And I think there are a few pro- there are, we've got some some real problems. I think one of them, a key one, is our division between inner and outer, and uh, uh, somehow an assumption that race is an outer um, thing. Although I would have thought that the one place that divided the inner from the outer would be the skin, um, but it it's it it becomes a sort of non-subject. Less so now than it used to be, but it, 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 it certainly has been. I think there's something in the way our institutions are structured um, hierarchically, which, which, which makes it very difficult to be different in them. And I think there's also a problem about the myth of the complete analysis. There's something about um, which is one of which is a main strength of our trainings is that we are all in in analysis in our trainings, but I think it can lead to a complacency that there's nothing more to be examined, um, and so I think I think we've, we're working against some some major problems embedded in the, the nature of our institutions. And I think we've got defensive structures. About every, certainly in this country, about every six months or a year, a group of white people in an, in the organisations get together and say, "Isn't it terrible that we're all so white? How do we how do we do anything about it?" Mostly, the solutions are put in with the black people, like, "Oh, it's money." Let's get bursaries together, whatever. What we don't do is say, well, what work do we have to do? Why don't black people want to come and be with us? What, um, and then it goes away. And then about a year later, the same conversation comes up around again. And I think that's part of our institutional defence structures, actually. I won't take part of those discussions anymore because unless we're prepared to do something, the, the, the conversations themselves are defensive i think wow okay um i'm gonna move on but uh, so much to to go to ask about there but um there wasn't a lot of um clinical material in your book although there was some and there was one um uh, little vignette you told that i that really struck me again as sort of what psychoanalysis can bring um that other therapeutic modalities might not but you told about a client who had come in and she kind of disclosed to you um, a racist interaction she just had. She was embarrassed, um, but she you know, caught herself and recognized that she had this, um, these racist biases that had slipped out. And so she did the right thing by disclosing that. And then, uh, and then she moved on and began to talk about some other things. But you brought her back um, that I guess with the believing that there was more more work to be done there, and um, and that's where I thought, aha, this is this is what psychoanalysis brings. Um, it it uh, doesn't take things at face value or um, that are too easily resolved, uh, and then some really good work happened, and I, I just was impressed because I don't know if I would have thought to bring the patient back. I would have taken it for granted that 
she had done her work and now we could talk about other things. But do you remember anything more about that? Well, I suppose I'm, I use it as an example of disavowal um, and also how um, uh, the, I can't even remember who I was quoting, but um, so one of the problems with disavowal is if you're working um, with disavowal in the consulting room, you're working, it's difficult to work with because you're working, again, both horizontally and and, and uh, uh, vertically into sort of unconscious material and the problem is when the when you've got you've got a, the two the, the analyst and the patient are both have the same form of disavowal so the disavowal was in I was suggesting that what she was doing was sort of confessing her her, her bad basis thoughts uh, or statements to me and then but wanted to move to getting back to a sense of herself as a good good person and she was appealing to me as another white person to to uh, join her in that and because I have because I'm a white person too and and uh, have the same sort of disavowal system a lot of me was very keen to move on I actually would have liked to have moved on because I knew that the, the conversation was going to be uncomfortable for us both um so the temptation was to 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 have the statement that said it's all right now now we move on um and and that and by that i would have been colluding with something and failing her because there, there was actually a lot of about her in her her and her her internal world that was very important in terms of that particular incident but I, what I was interested in, in a way, was my 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 seduction, my you know, or the, or the pull towards uh, that. And I think that's what happens often when white white analysts are working with white patients. We tend to think about race much more when we're working with black patients or people with cut of color. But that, how do we work with it when it comes up in with white patients? Yeah. Okay. Um all these hard questions you're raising. They're showing us the work we have yet to do around our whiteness. Um, well, let's say, oh, I know it, I wanted to ask you, there, through the decades, there's been, I don't know about lots, but there have been books written about psychoanalysis and racism, not psychoanalysis and whiteness, as far as I know, but uh, so how would you distinguish your book um, from other maybe books people know about psychoanalysis and racism. I'm coming to mind is one of, I think, David Fockery from the British psychoanalytic who wrote a book on, from a Kleinian perspective on racism. Fockery Davids. Yes, yes. Fockery Davids is the way we're at. Fockery Davids. Did I say David Fockery? Okay, yeah. Um, I'm sorry about that. Uh, so yeah, can you say anything more about how your book is different? Well, Fakri is is writing about race. I mean, um, and he's he's writing as a, a, a man of Asian descent, um, who's trained at the um, Institute of Psychoanalysis. Who is he? Is very Kleinian. Um, uh, he he his work, which I think is very important, but it's um, he's much more thinking about race and racism, and he's much more. Whereas I'm writing about whiteness, and, and I, I think they're obviously related, but they're not the same. Um, and he is 
I suppose... I don't know whether I'm criticising him, but I, I, I do think there's something about the way... When we, when we think about racism in terms of um, projection and projective identification and splitting... That, that that that's helpful. I don't I don't deny that, but it's I think it 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 can contribute. It can reinforce the individualization that that's um, that white people do in terms of trying to explain race rather than con- than conceptualizing it. Um, so um, so it reinforces the idea that sort of I'm a I'm a an individual. Um, and here's my inter- internal world, and I project um, shadow material onto the other, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. All that is true, but it, it and it's helpful. And I, I, I think I think Fakhri does an extremely good job of, of describing that. But it sort of misses the um, the social political context. I think um, in it. It, it, it's a way of you seeing how the individual utilizes the racist structures. The danger is it, it, it looks as if it, it can look as if it's assuming that's the origin of the structures and, and therefore their solution. And I don't, I don't think that's true. Um, over, over in this country, there's been quite a debate, or there used to be, not some, some years ago, him and someone called Fahad Dalal. Um, and Fahad writes much more, he's a group analyst, and so he takes much more of a group perspective on it. Um, and they've had differences very interesting differences of opinion around that it's um so so i'm i'm trying to locate to look at both how it's it's a social construction that's our basic my basic premise um and then the individual psyche will utilize that construction in in our particular ways i'm struggling right now with um thinking about thinking about how i got his name wrong i called him david fakri instead of you corrected me. And so I'm struggling with how not to be in white guiltiness and sort of move towards true guilt and think about, I guess, because in my white world, David is a first name, not a last name so much. Um, so I was kind of trying to fit him into my sort of structure of how the world is supposed to work. Um, and then, uh, yeah, somehow not knowing that foreign name, Fakhri, uh, so anyway, I'm trying to like analyze no, myself. You see that that that's absolutely right, isn't it? It's these thoughts, these slips, these differences. Will we? They, they will come up in our minds and in our speech, and in they just will. We're not. You can't because that's the world we live in. That's the world we were brought up in. That's the world we we're structured in. And but what is interesting, you see, is then to say not oh bad you. Go to the go into the corner and and don't come out until you've <laughs> you've learnt the right words, but more oh that's interesting now how did I what's that so that some of that work that's what I call the work of whiteness is not not banish those racist thoughts from my mind but just you know oh, uh, you know if I'm sitting standing in the supermarket queue behind a woman in a burqa or something and I found myself having a thought about her you know which I think. That's, I'm not sure I'm very proud of that thought, but what's that about? What's how did that? Where did that come from? What what do I do with it? And I think you're right. You you sort of normalise Thackeray into a into a white context, um, 
And that's interesting. Yeah. It's very easy to, to make slips when we, as white people, begin talking about r- racial, racial issues, which is why we don't like to talk about it. Um, yeah, and you do. So I, was, I guess, good. I, I learned something from your book. I was able to try to talk about it. Um, you do reference Robin DiAngelo, is that her name? White fragility. So I was trying not to be too fragile and sort of risk talking about that. So speaking of um, books, other books on this topic, do you have any of your, while we sort of final question, um, any other books you recommend that, that you think are really good? That well, well, I do think, I do think Robin D'Angelo is important. Mm-hmm. I don't agree with everything she says, but I think what she, her book is, is, is important. In fact, she's written another one called um, Nice, Nice Racism, How Progressive White People Perpetuate Racial Harm, which is a bit of a, <laughs> You have to be a bit take a deep breath to read that one, but it's 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 a challenge. But it, I think it's a I think we ought to be reading these books. I think there's um in terms of race and psychoanalysis, I I don't know that Celia Brickman's work I think is very interesting. She she challenges a lot of our uh, some of the terms we use, where they come from. Words like primitive, for example, is is very questionable in terms of its roots, and yet we use it all the time without without thinking about it, not in a racial context, but but it it, it without really understanding its roots. And she's um she, I think she's race and psychoanalysis, Aboriginal populations in the mind is her book, and um she, it's a it's a good thorough book that that takes a lot of I mean she's um. She takes a lot of Freudian texts and have, have and looks at those. But it's it, if you're, I think if you're in the business, as it were, it's it's a book that's that's worth um, worth reading. Um, but there are there's, there's quite a lot more, more books written now, a um, lot more papers in the psychoanalytic world. But it's not a it's not been a it's becoming more of a subject of um, discussion now. Um, Frank Lowe is another British um, psychoanalytic psychotherapist, black British psychoanalytic psychotherapist who's, who's works at the Tavistock and has done a lot of work thinking about race in the profession. Um, well, well, thank you very much, and um, for the time, for the interview, for the book. I hope this book uh, becomes an important part of a lot of training um, programs because uh, I think it'd be excellent for that purpose. Um, and so thank, thank you very much, Helen. Well, thank you, Philip. Thank you. Uh, you've been listening to an interview with Helen Morgan about her book, um, The Work of Whiteness, A Psychoanalytic Perspective, here at the New Books and Psychoanalysis Network. Um, please contact me at philipjlance at gmail.com to let me know your thoughts and questions about the show. And thanks for listening. Bye-bye.